All right, we're going to, um, let's open in prayer, all right? Father God, uh, we just thank you for bringing us here tonight, Lord, and we just thank you for your word and who you are, and Lord, that your character never changes. Um, even over millennia, you are the same yesterday, today, and you will always be. Lord, I just pray that the words you have given me will um, be honoring to you. May they fall on open ears and open hearts. And Lord, may we come away um, looking for those ways that we can apply your word in our lives as we go forth. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Oh, I don't need to stop that. Okay. All right. So let's dive in. This week's chapter, um, if you were able to look at it, if you weren't, no worries, we're going to talk about it. We cover Ezekiel chapters 25 to 31. These are comprised of a series of prophecies um, against the neighboring countries of Israel. So we move away from, from Israel and their own issues um, to their neighbors. And the judgments are harsh. They are significant. Kings and countries will be laid low through God's sovereignty over the earth. He uses perhaps some unlikely characters to accomplish his purposes. And as we study, we learn that some of the prophecies came true during Ezekiel's life, but some of them came true many, many years later in history. As we look at each of these countries, we can see that, they, that the sin that they engaged in was similar from nation to nation. There was jealousy, rejoicing in the adversity of others, arrogance, pride, greed, and placing your security in wealth. We can read these passages and some of them are kind of extreme. It's hard to picture the reality that comes to pass. And when you do begin to process the prophecies of judgment, it's hard sometimes and sad to know that so many people suffered and died. So in the first half of this study from the fall, we talked about the importance of judgment as a tool for revival and redemption. And we here see this again, this theme repeated for these, each of these nations. By my quick search and count, which may be a little rough, the phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord, was used 34 times throughout Ezekiel. So let's start with chapter 25. At this um, chapter, God starts with issuing judgment against the Ammonites. The people are descended from Lot's union with his younger daughter, Ew. She bore a son named Ben-Ami, who became the descendant of the Ammonites. Israel's history with the Ammonites begins as early as the Exodus when they refused to let Israel pass through their land when Israel was escaping from Egypt. They were a cruel pagan people who worshipped gods named Milcom and Molech. Their brutality is talked about in 1 Samuel and Amos, and I'm not going to describe it because what's described there is gory and gross. Just know that it was bad. Um, God had prohibited the Israelites from intermarrying with the Ammonites because he didn't want them corrupting his people with false gods. It's like he knew what he was talking about. In Ezekiel chapter 25, we see that God is very angry with the Ammonites because they gloated over Israel's destruction. He says in verses 6 and 7, Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, and have rejoiced with all malice in your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have reached out with my hand against you, and I will give you as plunder to the nations. I will exterminate you, so you will know that I am the Lord. God uses Babylon to execute his judgment, 
and the Ammonites will be defeated by them. Now, the order of the nations goes clockwise from north to south. So on the map, we're about to move south, and we see a judgment against the Moabites. There are people descended from Lot's union with his older daughter, Eu. She bore a son named Moab, who is the descendant of these people. You may have heard the story of Ruth, who was a Moabitess. She was a widow who followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, from her homeland of Moab to Israel. And there in Bethlehem, Ruth meets a wealthy man named Boaz, and they get married, and she becomes King David's great-grandmother. So that's a nice story. This one is not so nice. Here in Ezekiel 25, though, God is angry that Moab claims that Judah is just like all the nations. And God says in chapter 25, verse 10, he's going to give Moab as a possession along with the sons of Ammon to the people of the east so that the sons of Ammon will not be remembered among the nations. God will assert his own sovereignty in order to demonstrate just how different the God of Judah is compared to the gods of all these other nations. And he's going to allow Babylon to defeat both Moab and the Ammonites. Next we move on, we see God pronounce judgment on Edom. The Edomites are descended through Esau, Jacob's brother. Jacob's also Israel. Here God says the judgment is because Edom, quote, has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has incurred great guilt and avenged themselves upon them, end quote. His judgment will be thorough. He says in verse 13, I will also reach out with my hand against Edom and eliminate human and animal life from it. This time, the judgment will be brought by Israel itself. Interestingly, unlike in the cases of Moab and Ammon, God doesn't end the prophecy with, and then they will know that I am the Lord. He ends with, so they will know my vengeance. Next, God says he's going to judge Philistia. Israel has a long, violent history with the Philistines. You may remember the giant Goliath was a Philistine who lived in King David's time. Here, God says that they will be judged because, quote, they acted in revenge and have taken vengeance with malice in their souls to destroy with everlasting hostility. In verse 16, he states that he will reach out against them destroy, and destroy the remnant on the seacoast. God will have great vengeance. You might be wondering what all this history, all this judgment has to do with you and me thousands of years later. What can we get out of a text like this? For me, I see two things that we can apply to our own lives here and now. First, we shouldn't gloat over the trials or challenges or judgment of other people. We shouldn't enjoy seeing bad things happen to people we don't like or people we don't know. Vengeance is the Lord's and the Lord's alone. And we don't demonstrate God's forgiveness in our own lives when we hope for bad things to happen or when we gloat when they do. All right, as an example, you're driving down the beltway, you get passed by somebody going really fast, Maybe they cut you off or cut it a little close, and you're irritated. It's annoying, um, maybe angering. Two miles later, you drive by, and you see them pulled over by a police car. Is your response, ha, serves you right, because that feels like vengeance to me. <laughs> maybe it really does serve them right, but is my attitude right and reveling in it? I think these kinds of examples abound in our lives. 
maybe difficult people at work, maybe difficult people in your family or friends, maybe exes or something like that in your world. How do we react when they get what's coming to them? What is the posture of my heart towards these people? And would I or do I celebrate when, I, when they encounter trials or adversity? Because that's what it feels like the Philistines did, and God roundly condemned it. The second application I see in these examples is that God often uses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. In several of these cases, he's using the pagan nation of Babylon as his agent of judgment. He doesn't give all of these victories to Israel, his chosen people. God doesn't always pick the firstborn, the most fierce warrior, the tallest, the strongest, or the most sinless even. Throughout the Bible and history, God uses people who are insecure, small in stature, and people who make mistakes, a lot of mistakes and serious mistakes. We shouldn't discount the means and the ways that God can accomplish his goals in our lives and the lives of others. We need to find those places where God is working around us and trust that sometimes how he is working and who he is using just might surprise us. All right, we're moving into chapter 26. That was a lot packed in that one chapter. <laughs> now we see Ezekiel begin to prophesy against the nation of Tyre. And we'll spend several chapters here addressing this particular company, country. Excuse me. They were a very wealthy nation at the center of trade and industry. During the lives of King David and King Solomon, they had a close relationship with Israel. They provided a lot of the resources during the building of both the palace and the temple. For many years, the Israel-Tyre relationship worked both ways, as Tyre also relied on Israel for trade routes, and they were crucial to their economy and wealth. As Ezekiel prophesies, we see that God is angry with Tyre, who wanted to exploit Jerusalem's fall and ultimately control the trade in the area. In Ezekiel 26.2, we see their reaction to the fall of Jerusalem. Aha! The gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. It, is, it shall be filled now that she is laid waste. God goes on to describe with specificity how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will come against Tyre and kill the people and lay waste to the land. Tyre's strength, wealth, and security will be brought low. In verses 11 to 13, God says, With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will go down to the ground. Also, they will take your riches as spoils and plunder your merchandise, tear down your walls, and destroy your delightful houses, and throw your stones, your timbers, and your debris into the water. So I will put an end to the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps will no longer be heard. Here's a good place to pause and remember that God doesn't revel in the destruction of a nation. In fact, he's just judged several nations for doing that very thing. No. God warns this destruction, even while he's holding, his people, he's holding people accountable. It reminds me of parenting. It pains us to see our kids make unwise choices. You can warn them. You can tell them they should do things differently. And yet, when they experience the consequences of their actions, we know it's justified. 
and we may hurt for them. We may weep for them at those consequences, but it doesn't mean they weren't warranted. And that's how I envision God feels. These are necessary judgments he issues, and it hurts him that the people won't turn their hearts to him in repentance. In chapter 27, we see God describing the beauty and richness of Tyre, their wealth, their natural resources, the other countries they traded with. He describes how the other nations will see the destruction of Tyre and be appalled, horrified. The study book and history point out that Babylon waged a 13-year siege against Tyre, and it happened in Ezekiel's lifetime, validating his authenticity as a mouthpiece of God. Ultimately, that war ended in a treaty. However, the length of the siege destroyed Tyre's position as a global trade country and impacted several other countries that they dealt with. The final destruction of Tyre wouldn't occur for several hundred years until Alexander the Great captured the island portion and cut it off from the mainland, finally fulfilling God's word that the land would become a desolate rock. We should take note that the wealth itself of Tyre is not the sin. However, their dependence and security in their wealth, they became greedy. So much so that they were glad when their neighbor, nation, and a former ally and friend was laid low and they wanted to capitalize on it. Further, they felt untouchable, strong and mighty. But God uses Babylon to remind Tyre that only he is sovereign. So I think we have to ask ourselves, where does our security lie? Do we put security in our job, our savings, other people like our spouses or family or friends, our government? Our trust needs to be in the Lord for every need, every provision. And as someone who's been laid off and worked at places where job security was questionable a lot of the time, I'll admit that putting security in a good job is one that creeps in for me. My trust, my security needs to be fully in the Lord 100% of the time. I praise him for the jobs that he's provide, given me to provide for our family, but I find that sometimes I have to realize that, my, that any security I have comes from the Lord and not from that job or that person. We also need to remember where any wealth or prosperity that we have comes from. Anything I have, God has given me. It can be really easy for my mindset to shift into, wow, I worked so hard. My car, my house, my whatever is so nice. Um, I'm not entitled to any of it, nothing that I have. And I need to keep the perspective that anything that I have is temporary, and I owe it all to the Lord. All right, moving on to chapter 28. We see God describe how wise, wealthy, and successful the king of Tyre is. However, his pride is large, and he sees himself like God. God Almighty will judge him for it. In verses 6 and 7, God says, Because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore behold, I'm going to bring strangers against you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and profane your splendor. In verse 9, God says, Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of the one who kills you? It's not going to end well for this king. Chapter 28 takes an interesting turn, round about verse 12. 
These verses shift and are clearly not about the king of Tyre anymore. They're about Satan. We see a little bit of history described. He was in Eden. He was perfect and full of wisdom, beauty, and perfection. God anointed him, Satan, a cherub. He stood on God's holy mountain. And then in verse 15, we read, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. God goes on to then describe his fall and defeat. This shift from the king of Tyre to Satan has always fascinated me. And there's a quote in the study book on page 191 that I thought was helpful in how to read and interpret this part. Quote, he, Ezekiel, appeared to have the situation of his day in mind with his attention riveted upon the ruler of Tyre, the embodiment of the people's pride and godlessness. But as he viewed the thoughts and ways of that monarch, he clearly discerned behind him the motivating force and personality who was impelling him in his opposition to God. In short, he saw that the work and activity of Satan whom the king of Tyre was emulating in so many ways, end quote. At the end of the chapter, God receives his vision for a restored Israel, and he says in verses 25 and 26, this is what the Lord God says, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and show myself holy among them in the sight of the nations, then they will live on their land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live on it securely, and they will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I execute judgments upon all around them who despise them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For us today, I think we have to heed this cautionary tale of the dangers of pride. Pride puts us in the place of God. We give ourselves credit. We put security in ourselves. When we have pride, do we need God? Even if we aren't at the level of the king of Tyre here, where maybe we don't think we're God, have we shoved him to the side by putting ourselves up front? I think this is another sin that creeps in. God's description of Satan says that he was blameless until unrighteousness found him. We have to be on the watch for those places in our hearts where sin creeps in, sometimes so subtly we don't even notice. I also think that part of displacing pride is that whole thing, reliance on God, relinquishing control, relaxing the anxiety, which, oh, how I struggle, surrender. I found myself sleepless one night very recently, fixated on the grade that my son might get on a recent final exam. And I was praying, Lord, let it be a B. Let him get a C in the class. And after a while, I thought, wait a second. Am I surrendering this to God's will? Or in some way with my worry, am I trying to control the outcome? Am I demanding that God grant that request like a magic genie? Is that real trust? Nope, for sure it's not. And I repented then and asked God, please forgive me for my lack of trust. And I gave it all to him and fell asleep not long after. Um, and I told him, Lord, I trust that whatever the outcome is, you are going to manage it. Okay, side note, praise the Lord, it was a C. Um, <laughs> but I shouldn't have stressed about it. That's the point. Um, when we surrender, God gives us, uh, gathers us to himself. He gives us that security, and then we can experience the peace. Was I at peace with the worry? No way. 
He puts us in his land to plant the vineyards. He longs for Israel to surrender and for the surrounding nations to let go of their sin, acknowledge him, and give him their trust so they will know that I am the Lord. All right, chapter 29. Now God addresses Egypt. Geographically, this is the farthest of those nations from Israel. Israel had tried to lean on Egypt um, for help against Nebuchadnezzar. There's a passage in the study book that describes the history well. So when you're in your small groups, take a look at that section on page 197. But the short story is, Egypt was going to help Israel, and they bailed. Israel puts its trust in Egypt and not in the Lord, and they have their own issues. But right off the bat in chapter 29, God calls out Pharaoh. Pharaoh, too, sees himself as divine, as God. He even takes credit for creating the Nile. And God is going to bring Pharaoh down. And in verses 5 and 6, he says, You will fall on, an open, on the open field. You will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the animals of the earth and to the birds of the sky. Gross. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. God says in verse 9, The land of Egypt will become a desolation and place of ruins. Say it with me. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Egypt has been in this place before. We studied another book where God repeatedly used the phrase, and they will know that I am the Lord. In our study on Exodus, we spent a lot of time looking at Egypt, their pagan practices, and their oppression of Israel. When God sends the ten plagues, many of them end with, so they will know that I am the Lord. And the plagues destroyed the land of Egypt. Here we are, almost more about a thousand years later since the Exodus, and Egypt finds themselves in this place again, about to be an utter waste and desolation. And God's agent of judgment against Egypt? You guessed it, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Interestingly, God offers a word of hope for Egypt. In verse 14, he says he's going to restore Egypt and bring their people back to the land. They won't be the powerhouse nation they were before, only a lowly kingdom. He removes their power and status, partly so that Israel can't put their trust in Egypt anymore. And God ends the chapter with, and I will open your mouth among them, then they will know that I am the Lord. As we look at our own hearts and recognize places where maybe sin has crept in or unrighteousness has found us, I think it's important that we don't keep these transformations we go through secret. We're to share with others the news of how we're changed. God wants us to be his instruments of spreading the news about who he is and what he does. In Romans 10, 14, Paul says, How can they call on the one they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Are there places in your life where you can share? Sharing might feel intimidating, but it's really just as simple as sharing your story. As simple as, hey, I was struggling with this thing, and when I gave it to God, I was changed. Who are those people in your life that God is asking you to share your story with? All right, bringing it home. Chapter 30, more prophecies about Egypt. They take place between the prophecy against Pharaoh and the prophecy of Egypt's restoration. 
And in these prophecies, God doesn't just address the leadership or the land's destruction. He mentions several cities, and they are religious centers in Egypt. In verse 13, he states, And I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis. He's going to take out their false gods and deal with their sin because he is showing them that he is the Lord. And in chapter 31, God gives Pharaoh the example of Assyria, a beautiful nation rich in resources, but their hearts became haughty. There's that pride again. God gave them over to foreign tyrants, and Assyria fell and became desolate. As happened to Assyria, God says this will be what happens to Pharaoh and Egypt. Greed, pride, arrogance, rejoicing in the adversity of others, not trusting in God. These are the recurring sins of the nations that surround Israel and, and of Israel itself. For us, we have to be vigilant about monitoring our own hearts to be sure sin isn't creeping in, crouching at our door, that unrighteousness isn't finding us and isn't finding a foothold in our hearts. When we repent and when we turn our worries and cares fully over to God and trust in him, we need to share that story with others so they will know that he is the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we just praise you so much for your word. We thank you for the chance to repent and turn to you with whatever's going on. And I just pray that you will bless our conversation as we dig in even further in our small groups and guide us as we go from this place this week. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.